This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Why are we having a seminar here today? Um, well, the reason is that Nick and I have been discussing this for a long time. Um, we buy each other lunch and we discuss these matters. And each time we say, look, we've got to actually open up this discussion a bit. And we've finally got around to doing it, which is great, I think. Um, not least because we, we have a lot of common ground between us as individuals. And we also use this discussion of underpinning philosophy to drive what we do. And not only in terms of, of moral values, but, but in terms of scientific method. And that is what we want to really open up as a discussion and get some insights into through collective consideration. I usually forget to introduce myself, so Tim Oates, um, ARD uh, Group Director here, Assessment Research and Development Group Director here at Cambridge Assessment, um, Fellow at Churchill College, and uh, someone who's done transnational comparisons for many years, and been very concerned about, about underpinning values and assumptions within uh, research, within educational development, and so on. So Nick and I thought it would be a good idea, and then of course Paul with Stuart, Stuart, hello Stuart, um, Paul Newton, uh, Dr. Paul Newton, Professor Paul Newton now, Institute of Education, Fellow of uh, the uh, European Association, um, has uh, undertaken a, a key text on, on validity with uh, Stuart Shaw's joint author, um, met most of their publication deadlines, um, so it's with the publisher now, um, and uh, inevitably, in the course of uh, a considering a textbook on validity, there was a lot of discussion of uh, antecedent philosophy, of underpinning commitments, of the structure of thought around validity. So we thought it would be a good idea to do it now because Paul can give us an insight into that. I can do some generalisations in terms of what we're learning through transnational comparisons and looking at the philosophy of science. And that bridges and segues nicely into Nick's presentation, which will really look at how the commitments beneath Cambridge English's work actually deliberately and explicitly informs its, its practical action. So usually we'd have an expert chair contextualising it all, um, but we're not going to. We're going to get pass swiftly on to Paul presenting on validity. But I do want to say just, just one thing, finally, which is we're, we're only going to focus on a couple of matters, but when we begin to discuss assumptions, those assumptions span an enormous area, and I've alluded to it, because within action there lies assumptions, and often those, they're highly theoretically driven. And they range from the way in which we see the world, the way we think the world is structured, to moral values. So the, the philosophical commitments are extremely broad, and very often one has to be very clear about what, what, what kind of areas one is actually making assumptions about and how assessment and education embodies those assumptions. And that's something which which I'll pick up. What shone through the transnational comparative work, which I've done for 20 years, initially with Mike Coles, and then more latterly on the National Curriculum Review, is that ideas really matter in all systems, because they actually constitute the systems. And that's what I'll really deal with in my presentation. But now, particularly with a focus on validity... Professor Paul Newton. Thank you very much. And my contribution today is uh, to be uh, encouraging clarity of ideas. 
So I'm going to focus particularly on the semantics of validity, what we mean by validity in particular. Obviously, I can't start without plugging the book. Thank you, Tim, for already having done so. Uh, This is Newton and Shaw, 2014, um, available on all good bookshops uh, from April. Um, Looking forward to that coming up. What I'm going to be talking about today is actually a little bit different from the focus that the book had, um, because it's going a little bit further in terms of um, looking specifically at this issue of the semantics of validity. So it's just going a little stage further, one stage further than the book did. Um, Maybe hackneyed as, as it might be, as it probably is, uh, I can't resist uh, opening the presentation with a quotation from Lewis Carroll. This is uh, a passage from Through the Looking Glass, and it's a passage where Humpty is extolling the virtue of unbirthday presents, and much more significant than birthday presents, because there's only one birthday in a year, and there's uh, 364 unbirthdays. So they're much more significant. And he concludes by saying, well, there's glory for you. Don't know what you mean by glory, Alice said. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't, till I tell you. I meant there's a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use the word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean. Nothing more, nothing less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. And I think that closing sentence is really interesting, really significant if you look at the literature on validity over the past few years. In fact, maybe over the past 20 years, uh, 30 years at least. Um, I think it really summarises the state of play we're in. You know, whether or not words can mean so many uh, different things, whether the word validity can mean so many different things to so many different people. So that's what I'm talking about today. Um, It's about what people mean by the word validity and whether they can mean so many different things. Okay, um, pedant though I am, and I am a pedant, um, even I didn't used to be that fussed about the lack of consensus over the meaning of the word validity. I think that's possibly because I assumed there was a general consensus over the meaning of the word validity. Uh, Maybe it was the definition that was in the standards, for example, the the USA Standards for Educational and Psychological Testing. Maybe it was Samuel Messick's definition of validity. Maybe I just assumed there was consensus. Now it's fairly clear to me there isn't consensus over the meaning of validity. So we need to focus clearly on, on what we actually mean. Uh, and these, these statements help me to, or, or emphasise for me, the, the importance of being clear about validity. So we've got a um, quotation uh, at the top from the Cambridge approach. Uh, key criteria in driving assessment is Cambridge assessment is validity. From ETS, a similar kind of document from 2002, validity is the most important aspect of the quality of assessment. From the standards, validity, therefore, is the most fundamental consideration in developing and evaluating tests. Okay, so the way I look at it is that the concept of validity, the word validity, it's our pledge to the outside world. But in a sense, that pledge is kind of quite hollow unless we can say and more importantly, unless other people can actually tell exactly what we mean by validity. So that's my starting point, really. And if you don't agree with that, then you won't agree with anything else in the session. But that's where I'm starting from. Um, Okay, I'm going to explain how people disagree over the meaning of validity, but I think it's really quite useful to start by thinking about how they generally do seem to agree. So see if we can work out a foundation for the semantics of validity. So I reckon it comes down to these things in particular. Everyone, I think, seems to agree that validity is a very important concept. 
don't think anyone disagrees with that, really. So that's good. Got a good start. But is it the most important concept? Not everyone thinks it's the most important concept in our field. Many people do, not everyone. Is it just first among equals? Most, uh, almost everyone, I think, or everyone... Yeah, I'd be surprised if anyone disagrees with it having something to do with measurement. But the question, though, is, is it purely about measurement? Or is it also about measurement and decision-making? Is it about measurement, decision-making, impact, social policy, blah, blah, blah? Or even more complicated still, is it actually about measurement in a technical sense? Or is it a bit fuzzier than that? Maybe a looser concept like assessment? So even, in, even within that idea that people are generally agreed about, there's still areas for disagreement. Most people, but not everyone, seem to agree that validity is a property of something. But there's a lot of disagreement over whether it's a property of scores, of tests, of arguments, and a whole host of other things as well. But there is general agreement that validity is a property. And there's also a general sense of agreement that validity has got something to do with strength. But, and I'm going to talk about this much more in, in the presentation, is that really about measurement strength? Or is it about argument strength? Those are two different kinds of strength. Um, and we'll think about them in a bit of detail. Okay, so I said most people agree that validity is kind of like a property of something. So it's a characteristic that something can have. And if you're happy to buy into the grammar of the X has validity um, terminology, and then we can try and get a handle on how we define validity by asking these kinds of questions. First of all, what kinds of objects can X be in the X has validity statement? And secondly, what property is or properties are common to all valid Xs? Those kinds of questions can help us to get a handle on what we might possibly mean by validity. And the two definitions that we're going to look at specifically provide very different kinds of answers to those questions. So we're going to explore two very different kinds of way of defining validity. We're going to look at validity as measurement on the one hand, and validity as justification, on the other hand. And the second one, I think, can be um, paraphrases uh, validity as argument strength. And we'll talk a bit about this. The sentence at the bottom is important. There are other important categories of definition. But the ones I've chosen are the most divergent. So I'm using them to illustrate the, the plane, uh, the territory that we're looking at. So all I'm doing today is just kind of exemplifying this problem, I think, uh, of a lack of clarity over the semantics of validity. Um, the debate between these two definitions of validity has been played out recently um, in various places um, by Denny Borsboom and colleagues on the one hand and Mike Kane on the other hand. So that's Danny Borsboom from the Netherlands and Mike Kane from ETS in the States. Mike Kane is there to represent the establishment position, really. Having said that it's been played out um, in, in opposing papers, which it has, Mike Kane doesn't actually subscribe to the second definition, which is a bit odd, because that's the way in which Danny Borsboom has characterised his position, and it's kind of the way that he's argued back as well. So it's been a very strange debate, and I'd encourage you, I'll give you the references if you want them, it's a very strange debate that's played out where Danny Borsboom has set Mike Kane and the establishment up as the second way of thinking about validity, but if you actually quiz him, as I have done through email, he'll reply very persistently that he does not agree with the second definition. So instead of actually framing it in terms of Denny versus Mike, I'm going to frame it and exemplify it in terms of um, Denny versus the standards, the 1999 standards for educational 
psychological testing. That really is the establishment position. Okay, so this is where Danny Bosman and colleagues come from. They start from the premise that validity is a concept that affirms measurement. And in doing so, they're kind of going back to the classic definition of validity, which is the degree to which a test measures what it purports to measure, which is probably a definition that's fairly familiar to, to many of you. Okay, so they unpack this by explaining this, and I'll read it because it's quite a useful quotation. They say, there's no universal characteristics of measurement except the ontological claim involved. So the only thing that all measurement procedures have in common is the either implicit or explicit assumption that there's an attribute out there, that's important, that somewhere in the very long and very complicated chain of events leading to the measurement outcome is playing a causal role, that's the other important bit, in determining what values the measurements will take. Okay, so validity for them is whatever the essence of measurement is. So that's their definition of validity. So in terms of the X has validity formulation, they insist that X is the test, and then that validity is the property of measurement. And what would claim the, make the claim X has validity true? Well, as I've just said, the test must be sensitive to variation in the targeted attribute, which means the attribute's got to exist. Okay? And the variations in the test scores have got to be caused by the attributes. So two characteristics there, existence and causation. And those two things, they think, are fundamental to measurement and therefore fundamental to validity. So validity for them, as I said, is whatever the essence of measurement is. These two criteria, they, they sound fairly harmless, but they actually, um, they actually unroot some fairly complicated, fairly thorny philosophical issues. Uh, the ontology, the nature of psychological attributes, the nature of causality itself, extremely thorny philosophical issues, which we won't go into in any detail today. I'm sure you're glad to hear. Okay, I think it's really important to understand exactly what Denny Borsman and co. mean by their definition of validity, because I think it's actually quite radical. Um, so this is my take on the Borsboom et al. position on the semantics of validity. And they don't explain it like this, but I think it's quite a useful way of explaining. You, well, you tell me whether it works. It works for me. I'm putting it validity, I'm expressing validity, according to Borsboom et al., in terms of um, signal processing theory, really. So I'm saying that, according to them, validity is signal acquisition. And as I put it on the slide, it means that if the signal from the attribute is received, if it causally affects the score, then the test has validity. So if, you're, if, generally speaking, candidates' reading ability is responsible for their reading ability test performances and consequently the reading ability test scores, then the test has validity. And that's all it's about. It's just Validity for them is just about that causal chain. You've got to bear in mind, though, that additionally, scores might be influenced by other factors. They might be influenced by noise in signal processing terms, or random construct irrelevance in measurement terms. Okay, but that's a separate issue for them. That's a separate issue of reliability. Scores might also be influenced by interference in signal processing terms, systematic construct irrelevance. Again, that's a separate issue for them, a separate issue of bias. So what, the, what I think is a radical conclusion is that, according to these guys, a test can be both valid and useless for measuring. It can be valid to the extent that there's a causal process, you know, the reading ability is having some kind of causal impact on the test scores. But actually, it might actually, the, the, the signal, if you like, might be entirely corrupted by noise or interference. So they're quite happy with the conclusion 
that valid, you can have an entirely valid test that is useless for measuring um, because they're actually just interested in defining validity in terms of one aspect of measurement quality, which is this aspect of causation. Okay? So it's quite a radical definition that they're proposing. It departs from most people's definitions, I think. Okay, so what are the pros and cons of this way of uh, defining validity? Um, on the left-hand side, reason to be cheerful. It's a tight definition of validity. I think that's a good thing. does have the potential to guide validation. What does it mean? Well, it kind of means you've got to find evidence uh, that on the right-hand side, uh, the attribute exists and causes the scores. But, of course, I've put that on the right-hand side. Because where do you find the kind of evidence that will give you answers to that question? You know, whether or not the attribute exists and causes... You've got to solve a few philosophical problems that have uh, challenged philosophers, philosophers for um, many centuries in order to provide that kind of validation evidence, I think. So I put that on the right-hand side as a reason to be glum. Also, I think it's a slightly problematic definition because that tightness in the deferent, it's achieved at the expense of what I've called lexical incongruity. It just kind of sounds wrong for a test to be valid and still entirely incapable of measurement. Sounds wrong to me. Sounds like an oxymoron. And the fact that it sounds wrong, I think, is a problem. Okay. Um, in a paper that I had published back in 2012, I interpreted uh, this definition at the top um, the definition from the 1999 standards, um, in terms of what seemed to be its spirit. Okay? But on this slide, I'm going to interpret it in terms of what seems to be its letter. And it's a different kind of interpretation. Okay, so the definition says, validity refers to the degree to which evidence and theory support the interpretations of test scores entailed by proposed uses of tests. Okay? So this definition seems to define validity in terms of the justification for interpretation of test scores. So the previous definition was framed in terms of measurement, but this definition of validity, it actually seems to be much more about justification, the degree to which evidence and theory support. Okay? So it's a slightly different kind of definition. Well, actually, a very different kind of definition. Because in the X has validity formulation here, what is X? Well, I think it's a score interpretation. It's a score interpretation that has validity. The claim that scores can be interpreted in a particular way, which I think is another way of, putting, of expressing the conclusion of the validity argument. For example, the test scores measure a particular attribute, like reading ability. Uh, what's validity in this formulation? Well, in this formulation, validity is the degree of justification for the score interpretation, okay? which I think is tantamount to the strength of the validity argument and its conclusion. This is my interpretation, of course, and I've just said it's only one of poss uh, a number of possible different interpretations. But it's the interpretation of the standards that Danny Borsboom seems to make, an interpretation of the establishment position that Danny Borsboom seems to make. So I think that's why I'm justified in using it here. Okay, so just to summarise then, um, according to the standards... Uh, in the formulation, X has validity. X is the validity argument, and ultimately its conclusion, which is the score interpretation claim. And validity is the property of strength. What makes X has validity true? Uh, according to Mike Kane, um, what makes the uh, X has validity true? Well, the validity argument's got to be coherent, it's got to be complete, and all of its inferences and assumptions have got to be plausible. 
Okay, so these are actually general criteria for evaluating arguments. They're not actually very much to do with measurement. Okay, what's this, the, uh, the pros and cons of this way of defining validity? Well, again, on the good side, um, it's a tight definition of validity. I think that's a good thing. Emphasizes the centrality of validity argument to validation. I think that's a good thing. Why, why are there problems? Well, one of the problems, I think, is that the tightness in the definition is achieved at the cost of importing a definition of validity from actually another, def- uh, another domain entirely. Okay? It's actually talking about the concept of inductive validity, if you like, which is a concept that people within fields like argumentation or informal logic might, be, uh, might employ to talk about the strength of our arguments. Okay? So it's not, really a, it's not really our measurement concept of validity, if you like. It's the concept of validity from argumentation theory. But it seems to be the concept that the standards are upholding, so that's interesting. Um, from this perspective, higher validity means a stronger conclusion. It doesn't actually mean better measurement quality. And for me, a problem is that it actually begs the substantive question, which is actually what's validity got to do with measurement? So I think there are, there are pros and cons of this one too. just want to emphasise the difference between those two kinds of definition. And I'm going to do so by... Um, making a couple of assumptions to begin with. So um, I'm suggesting that we frame the validity argument conclusion in terms of measurement quality. So pre- previously, I just framed it in terms of measurement. Now I'm adding this idea of quality. So let's say that the validity argument concludes that the test scores measure the targeted attribute adequately, okay? which is, I think, a reasonable kind of conclusion um, from a validation study. But let's also assume that the strength of the argument supporting that conclusion is really high. And if you go along with that, then you can see on the left-hand side, if you choose to define validity as measurement, when you use the word validity, you'll say something like, the measurement procedure has minimal validity, because the test scores only measure the attribute adequately. But if you define validity as justification, when you use validity, you'll be saying, well, the validity argument has high validity. Okay? So on the left-hand side, even though the argument in support of the conclusion is strong, the conclusion is that the measurement procedure has minimal validity. And even though the, minimal, uh, the measurement procedure has minimal measurement quality on the right-hand side, actually, the validity is high because it's the validity of the argument supporting that conclusion. Okay? In other words, for the same measurement procedure, validity could be high or low depending on how you actually choose to define validity. And for me, I think that's a bit of a problem. Okay? A problem if validity is meant to be the most fundamental consideration in developing and uh, evaluating tests, as the standards would have it. So before I conclude then, um, and I'm going to conclude shortly, here's a couple of questions that puzzle me. Uh, I've got one question for each of those two perspectives. My question for Borsboom is, what does your concept of validity actually add to the concept of measurement? Okay? And if it doesn't add anything, then why do you need your concept of validity? What's it doing? My question for the standards, if what you mean by validity is actually the strength of the validity argument, then why don't you just simply refer to the strength of the validity argument and stop confusing the hell out of everyone else? And if that's not what you mean by validity, then what do you mean? Because I'm not entirely sure if that's not what you mean. Okay, I'm going to come back to this first point because I think it's very important. Um, The oddness of Borsboom's definition. Up until recently, I'd not actually 
uh, wondered whether there was anything particularly odd about defining validity in terms of measurement. But recently, I, I have been pondering that question. And if you remember from the premise from which Borsman et al. begin, I said that validity is a con- uh, concept that affirms measurement. So effectively, what these guys are doing, and they're saying, and this is what we've actually done since the 1920s, step one, define validity as measurement. Step two, define measurement. But from this perspective, you've got to ask yourself, what is it that the concept of validity is adding to the concept of measurement? It seems to be this way of expressing the definition actually makes the concept of validity redundant with the concept of measurement. And I'm not the only one to to make that point. So the point here is clarity of concept. If the concept of validity is actually fully explained by the concept um, of measurement, then the concept of validity is superfluous, which is a bit worrying if that's the case. So I'm just going to end then by my current line of thinking in all of this. Um, First of all, I think that defining validity is an argument concept, validity two, rather than a measurement concept, validity one. It kind of begs the important substantive questions that we're all interested in, questions like what's, what's measurement got to do with it? On the other hand, if you define validity as measurement, that seems to me to render the concept of validity redundant with the concept of measurement, and that's a problem too. So I'll scratch my head now. Come to the third point, which is just a very practical, consequential one, which I think is unarguable, really, um, given the amount of time and space that's been devoted to this debate in recent years. Debate over the proper meaning of validity, it it continues to have negative consequences in our field. Wastes a lot of time that could be spent on more substantive um, definitional issues. Causes unhelpful rifts between measurement professionals and results in widespread confusion. This is an extremely confusing area to get into. So the question that I'm thinking about uh, at the moment is whether or not we can sidestep the need to talk about validity entirely, let alone to define it, and just focus directly on these substantive concepts. Concepts like measurement quality from the classical perspective, and then maybe testing policy value from more recent perspectives. So I kind of began by describing the importance of being valid. But now I'm actually concluding by questioning whether we need the concept of validity at all. And that's where I'm going to end. (laughs) Good. Now, Paul mentioned ontology at one point. Um, And what I want to do is just um, really really, uh, emphasise the importance of um, ontology and epistemology and and contrast the two. Um, ontology, in a sense, is the claims that you make about the nature of the real world, the things that exist, and the nature of them. Epistemology is the knowledge that we have of them. So that's, that's a key distinction. Now, I'm going to go a bit wider, um, because you could go as wide as hell. It's very, very difficult. When you're engaged with assessment, and you're locating it in educational systems and locating educational systems in social systems and political systems and economic systems, to really wonder about what you should think about. Um, Now, the thing is, this is not limited to educational assessment. People constantly wonder about health. How much is it spend on what? What does health mean? Where should we direct the resources? So there are many other related fields which actually engage in this this sort of inquiry for very practical reasons. Because conclusions in these areas determine what you do. And that's what Nick and I will particularly focus on. So 
you know, if you're left uneasy by the nature of the argument that Paul is engaging in, I don't think you should be, because what we're trying to do is to articulate things in such a way that we can then do things. So here we have assessment. Now, we seek to understand how assessment operates by looking at at it in context, and that context is uh, very much determined by culture. We want to consider what impact we have when we deploy assessment, and articulating immediately with the argument around validity, impact is critical if you want to think about how you're interpreting an assessment outcome, the information from an assessment, and what you're going to do with it whether that be selecting people, uh, giving them remediation, or whatever. So impact is really important. It has consequences. Hence, the whole area which has emerged of consequential validity. And it's been an important debate, actually. As confused as it might be, in terms of exactly what it is that people are discussing. And it's a field in which there has seemed to be myriad um, misrepresentations of different specialists' positions by other specialists. I mean, I think that's what Stuart and, and uh, Paul's inquiry in this area has particularly uncovered, this kind of systematic misinterpretation of different positions within the community. Nonetheless, I contend this lot is important for us as assessment specialists. What we do matters. It matters because it costs. It matters because it has impact on lives. So we want to understand how assessment is appropriated and used in cultural contexts, in social contexts. So we want to explain how they work. And we want to explain because we want to formulate our own action. Do we need to refine this test? Would this kind of assessment be appropriate in this particular country setting, whether that be the UK or another country? And so these things are all quite tightly linked. What I want to try to do is to describe the nature of those links because you can't describe those links independently of the structure of thought. Now, why bother about philosophy at all? Um, Because you can, as Paul and Stuart have uh, certainly discovered, spend an awful lot of time doing it. Uh, It's great if your institution pays you to do it. Um, It's great if you get a book out of it. Um, But why should we spend any time thinking about it at all? Why should somebody down in the DC-10 warehouse in Cambridge Assessment um, think about any of this stuff? Because they're, you know, they're posting out the assessments for us. Apart from the fact that our organisation has, as one of its values, um, giving people access to the benefits of education. So everything that we do must deliver that. Hmm. Okay, why bother about philosophy? Because perception and action is theory-laden. And there's been a great deal of work done here at Cambridge, which is really compelling on this. You find out there in the world what you're looking for and what your theory actually tells you you should look for. Um, The greatest case of that in the philosophy of science is the floppy-eared rabbits, which is rather good, actually, the fact that it's rabbit ears. This was a neurologist whose theory was that when you injected a rabbit with a particular enzyme, it caused massive neural damage. So the people in his lab were, in, were instructed to dissect these rabbits and to, to dissect the rabbits' ears in order to extract the nerves. Those nerves were then subjected to enormous scrutiny. This went on for years. Okay? Until one of the technicians said to, to the research scientist, why aren't you looking at the cartilage? Because there's massive cartilage damage in these ears. It's nothing to do with the nerves. Okay? So his theory 
and actually driven his actions really acutely. But it operates at a much more profound level than that. Now, why bother about philosophy? Well, actually, ultimately, it makes life easier because you stop doing silly things. Because it enables context, impact, and cause to be better understood. And it seems esoteric, all this stuff, but ultimately it's prosaic because it gives rise to action. And if you get the thinking right, then the action should be better. I'll come on to Finland because the thinking in Finland was interesting. It's quite prosaic because it ultimately resulted in them saying, we've got to have fully comprehensive education and everybody has to do that. But it was based on very strong consideration of ideas and ensuring that those ideas were enshrined right the way across the system. Theory determines what you look for and what you observe, and what, therefore what you find, and therefore how you construct reality. It doesn't mean in natural science that your ideas are reality. It means that it conditions that reality. Social science, a different story altogether. And this is where critical realism comes in, and I will come on to it in just a second. So in terms of concepts that we need to actually mobilise to, to get to grips with all of this, not only ontology and epistemology, ontology, the nature of things, epistemology, the structure of our thought, and bearing in mind our thought conditions how we view reality, we have to look at explanation, causal relations and prediction because we want our scientific theories about the world to explain things, that's good, to identify causal relationships, that this causes this and not the other way around, and to predict. So I heat this thing up in a vessel and I will get a certain pressure out of it. Boyle's law. And of course then we want to use all this stuff to act. And of course I love this. I'll just put it up briefly. Because that's kind of useful. Now what about this? This is interesting. Um, David Carlos. This caused a pandemonium momentarily in Berlin amongst the English members of the audience. David put this up about Hong Kong community, culture, where students said my mother is like a policewoman in relationship to my work at home. All of the English researchers alone went, <gasps> all the other researchers went, hmm, that's interesting. Now, I was intrigued by that, and so I asked a bit. And of course, actually, what does policewoman mean? Okay. Is that some tyrannical representation of an oppressive state? Okay. That individual carries all of that. Or is it somebody you're quite welcome to see as you're being mugged in a dark alley in Brixton? Look, policewoman means something very different in different cultures. It means something different in Eastern Europe during the 1960s to the streets of London during the 1970s and the streets of Cambridge now. Okay, so that's interesting. We should be bothered about semiotics and we should be bothered about the, the codes which are embodied in language. Okay, recently there was a launch of the, uh, the, the new... Uh, Cambridge Primary Review Trust, and the launch speech included this. Policies have little meaning until they are enacted by schools, and to enact is to domesticate, reinvent, or even subvert, as well as comply. Domestication, adapting generalised policy to unique school circumstances, is perhaps the most common response, and a major part of our task during the past three years in the review has been to help teachers recognise just how much power they have. What's interesting is the word subvert was welcomed by the audience. You could see it in their body language and in the later discussion. Subvert. So schools should adapt, sorry, domesticate, reinvent, or subvert, okay, or enact. Well, which of those? How the hell do they decide? Okay. 
So what do you appeal to in terms of structures and assumptions to make that decision? So should you always subvert national policy? Interesting questions. So that's why this discussion is very important. Now, one of the things I've also spotted is that culture, is, is, and I was talking about this earlier um, with the network consultants. I went back to Robin Alexander's work, and it's a definitive uh, transnational comparative work using type three, very highly narrative uh, comparisons of particular countries. Very in-depth, very, very systematic examination of these cultures. Uh, it's culture and pedagogy, and culture is, is being asserted as a key category which has been neglected in respect to these comparisons previously in this, in this text. Only four pages are devoted to defining culture. And it's almost exclusively defined in terms of the bottom concept of, oh, look, what I've called Cutler culture, as systematically repressive, using an Althusserian model of things like schools being the institutional representation of repressive state apparatus. So culture reproduces undesirable things, such as the oppression of women. Of course, anthropologists see culture as exotic. The example I used earlier, it's quite in in Papua New Guinea, how exotic it is that people kill their enemies and eat their brains. It's both interesting and intriguing. Why do they do it? I'm not interested in this continuum at all because it doesn't actually help us understand culture as an explanatory factor in terms of why things are the way they are in a particular setting, or, crucially, lead that explanation into a theory of action so that we can actually see culture as something we can both use and adjust to achieve certain ends. So I want that arrow to be real. I'm not interested in in kind of empty inquiry which just gives us an interesting description of something. There are loads of methodological antecedents to our work, the kind of structural analysis for Archer and Green. Rafe, very interesting. Policy learning emerging through the, is his term through the comparison of different countries. Or Stigler and Stevenson's brilliant work on pedagogy, comparisons between countries. Schmidt and Pratt, fantastic concepts of curriculum coherence and curriculum control. OECD's very good work. But I also drew my antecedents from Hegel, Gramsci, Salter and Tapper's Marxian analysis, Polanyi on the structure of knowledge, Roy Baskar on critical realism, and then the expressions of that in Sayer's work. And it's on those two that I'm going to really focus. But all of those give us analytic concepts, dialectical transformation of transitive systems. So the idea that society transforms itself through feeding its ideas and actions back into itself. Okay, we have an idea that we need a mass transport system, so we implement it. And, of course, that changes the nature of the urban environment. So on it rolls. Objective forces. Let's face it, there are objective forces in society. Once you've actually set up some, something that says you need to actually educate children from a very, very early age, that changes your society. So it becomes an objective force. And then you have things like earthquakes. You know, they happen. Look what's happened in Japan in terms of... of uh, their power system at the moment because of the tsunamis. Then there's ideology, which I will deal with. The idea of overdetermination, that certain things actually have a massive impact on systems and overdetermine everything else at certain times. And false consciousness, wrong ideas about something have an impact. And obviously the enacted and constructed curriculum, that we have a national curriculum and a school curriculum, which is actually constructed in the real transactions in classrooms. Okay. Now I'm going to go even faster. So those are important. Popper, Kuhn, Merton, Baskar, I've all engaged with all of those in terms of how does science work, how does it explain things. 
And then I'm going to come on to postmodernism. Okay, so postmodernism is tricky stuff. Um, postmodernism, I think, has had an insidious and very destructive impact on what we do as social scientists and what we do more generally. I believe it's been contributory to the erosion of the use of, of well-designed textbooks in our schools. Andy Green gives one of the most trenchant demolitions of postmodernism, postmodernist thinking that I've seen in Education, Globalisation and the Nation-State. I'll just read it out briefly. The recent discovery that other cultures actually exist and that they have their own systems of values seems to have induced a sense of moral shock in some intellectuals, a trauma which they, they rationalise by asserting that all cultures are incommensurable and all moral values relative, until, of course, they impinge on some unspoken moral bottom line when value judgments furtively reappear. Postmodernists should, postmodernism should be seen, therefore, not as a development beyond modernism, but rather as a continuation of a certain idealist current within it. This current, uh, it conveniently represents in its own analysis of modernity, the more to accentuate its own novelty. Postmodernism is really, as Habermas has contended, an extension of the ever-present and anti-rationalism of the modern period. Its insights are the same, and so are its dangers. Taken to extremes, it can only lead to moral nihilism, political apathy and the abandonment of the intellect, to the chaos of the contingent. Logically, it should end in silence, which is a reference, of course, to Beckett. But like one of Samuel Beckett's characters, the postmodernists continue to speak even when there is nothing left to say. Now, I'm going to pick that up in just a second in terms of knowledge. Nick, only about five more minutes. So postmodernism, the trouble is, it has given us enhanced explanation of things like power and control and of constructed reality. You know, it has been good to actually look at the kind of work which deconstructs language. So it says that, you know, the term enforced urbanisation during the Vietnam War actually meant shipping an entire population out and setting fire to their villages. Okay. So, really important. But the trouble is, where is the bedrock in terms of the things that we can rely upon in which to predicate our actions? And also, it's very useful because it actually talks about the uniqueness of formation. Individuals construct their ideas. That's great. That's really useful. But it also, and, and, and the impossibility of dependable intersubjectivity, the idea that one child builds up about mass may be different to another child's. But the idea that everybody necessarily does something different, and therefore everything's just all over the place, and there's nothing upon which we can rely, I think is wrong. Now recently somebody went at, uh, up to a key developer of part of the national curriculum and said, trouble is, as an academic, I don't believe in a knowledge-based curriculum. Now, what I said in response to that is the first problem within the pejorative phrase knowledge-based in this and all of the stuff you read in the press is the diminished concept of knowledge which is being used in such criticism. Knowledge should be viewed as expansive and rich, yet the common criticism in the public discourse implies that it consists solely of facts. But by contrast, Locke defined knowledge as a perception of the, or the agreement or disagreement of ideas. And this framed it as a complex constituent of thought and action, and so on and so on and so on. It's an incredibly reductivist idea of knowledge. This person hasn't read anything about contemporary epistemology. So we've got the irreducibly oppressive and repressive nature of cultural reproduction, 
the problem of culture, Robin Alexander, but we've got a problem that Schmidt and Prowat's notion of control, of curriculum control, whereby you line up everything in an education system to give you what you want, and that's what the best education systems do, okay? People criticise that because they use the word control. They don't read Schmidt and Prowat because Prowat says that the con control can be distributed and negotiated, not necessarily come from the top down. And Finland's interesting. People go to it now and say it's high autonomy with low accountability, no national assessment, very low levels of national assessment, very low levels of inspection. It's a small nation, it's an homogenous society, it's got a long tradition of literacy and home learning, culture, can't have that here. National curriculum for 120 years, we haven't got that, it's all cultural, can't have it here. The trouble is they miss how Finland actually transformed its system. It transformed it through incredibly dirigee Soviet control from the centre. There were inspectors sitting in the back of each classroom, making sure that people taught and lived and realised the comprehensive ideal in their classrooms. There were state-approved textbooks, all of them approved, to make sure that they realised the comprehensive idea. I ideal. Ideas matter. And it was imposed rigorously from the centre. And also within that were imposed models of ability and uniform commitment to comprehensive education. So formation of ideas and consensus were vital, so were mechanisms and control. Shared ideas are highly instrumental. And what if the consensus around the ideas begin to break down? In Finland, they said, if we've got arch-right wingers that suddenly pop up in the first two years and say selection is critical, the whole thing will fall apart. In other words, the shares, shared ideas were vital. So to end, I'm going to focus on explanatory power, causal power, predictive power. Because, of course, that's what we want in science. And that's what we want in assessment science. And that's what we want when we do assessment. We want to do assessment knowing that it'll deliver certain goods. And if postmodernism can't explain Finland, what can? That's the power of a criticalist, critical realist ontology. Stick with me. I'll do what usually gets done in a huge amount of time in two minutes. Here we go. My theory about light is not light itself. Okay? Because that's, you know, that's light. There it is. Look. Here it, yeah, that's how we see. That's... There we go. Okay. So we have a theory about light. We think it's a particle. So we develop a theory, and, and we, we deploy it, because, look, we go and do things, um, and the trouble is, mm, it doesn't always behave like a particle. So we then develop another theory, which is uh, a wave theory, and that's great, because that explains further things. The trouble is, hmm, that doesn't explain all of the behaviour of light. So we do certain things, we find out, we experiment, we get feedback, so we develop a third theory. And we get... But what you notice about that is light just carries on being light and will behave exactly as it's always behaved, irrespective of what we think about it. Now let's think about social theory and social systems. I don't think that women are as intelligent as men. That's my theory, volume one. Now that gives rise to certain actions. So for example, I don't think women should go to school. Okay. So therefore the measures I use to determine whether you know, empirically, women are as intelligent as men, tell me that they're not. It's not the same, you see. Your theory affects reality in a very different way to natural science. So ideas in the social domain are constitutive of reality in a way that theories in natural science are not constitutive of reality. They may affect what we see, and they may affect what we find, but they don't affect the underlying structures. 
And that we really have to bear in mind when we are undertaking assessment, because what we do affects things. So all this idea about control, all this idea about Finland, they thought the ideas were important, and they controlled the system to make sure everybody had those ideas. And the fact that everybody has those ideas makes the system work. So ideas are both, both express the rationale embedded in education arrangements, but they are constitutive of those arrangements. These arrangements exist partly by virtue of the ideas and not independently of the ideas. So ideas count. Nick. Thank you very much. Um, after those two very erudite presentations, I wonder whether this afternoon my job is to be Humpty Dumpty. Um, I wasn't uh, actually going to mention validity, by the way, at least not to my last slide. Um, I think what I'm here to do this afternoon is to provide an illustration, and that's what I've said on this slide. And those two diagrams or pictures on the right of this slide are, in fact, part of the illustration or part of the message. You can look at them there. Um, what I've said uh, as my introductory phrase is that we in Cambridge English need to adopt a stance which is coherent with our mission and appeals to theories which can inform practice and lead to public accountability. I think the, um, what we've been grappling with perhaps for 20 years is how we can integrate theories and various um, philosophical tendencies into a way of presenting ourselves with clarity, which can actually explain what we do to the world, and when challenged, can actually be explained or indeed modified should our um, ideas be proven to be wrong. The picture at the top was actually um, derived from a project where we had children um, giving us uh, their views when we're doing an impact study of our young learners' tests, and we had to come up with a methodology where you could actually get in information, usable information from children about what they were engaged in. They couldn't fill in a questionnaire because they were nine years old. They ended up drawing pictures. And this, this is, says 100 years of Cambridge English. That's important. Um, so being an ELT teacher, I thought I'd start from what we call the WH questions the who, what, why sort of things that we teach people when we teach them a language. So I've broken up my talk today in the illustration around the who and the why, and I mean the who, that's us and why we do our work, the what and the how, which would address issues of the sort of things that um, Paul was talking about, and then the how well and how successfully, which I think addresses the issues more that uh, Tim had introduced so that's how I'm organising the talk. The who and the why. Well, that's not up for grabs entirely. Um, I refer to the, the importance of having a stance in these issues. So the stance is not up for grabs because we are part of the University of Cambridge, part of Cambridge Assessment, originating within Uccles in 1913, hence 100 years. We have an educational mission with a focus on achieving positive impact in specific contexts. So are we doing measurement? Good question. And I would say within that, therefore, we, we are 
required to make a contribution to the common good, this concept of common good. Um, over the last hundred years, we've evolved, so we're not the same. And we've now become the leading international provider of in international English language examinations with provision of assessment of all kinds at national inst institutional levels worldwide. You mentioned context. We have multiple and very diverse contexts. Um, we might say 120 countries or 20 major countries. But in those contexts, we have over 4 million people taking our exams annually. So our impact is actually quite powerful. And our representation of the university and our organisation in the world is also quite important. So it's not simply what we do, it's uh, what we represent. Uh, over the 100 years, you see on the right of this picture, uh, 100 years ago we came up with an exam called CPE. That wasn't by accident that it happened. That was at the time when language teaching was changing from moving to, be, to being about learning Latin and Greek to learning modern languages. So there's a concept there of the direct method of teaching languages for communication. That's where we came in, and over the last 100 years, influenced by many um, factors in the applied context where teaching and learning goes on, we've actually evolved a system which defines some kind of learning curve or ladder which takes people from, from beginners to experts in English. So that's who we are. Now, what and the how? Well, that would take a long time to explain in detail. So I've picked up two points. The, the importance we now have um, determined of having a socio-cognitive model of language and learning, and you can think of all kinds of philosophical and theoretical uh, links with that, not least you know, going back to Wittgenstein and Searle and Austin in the theory of um, communication, and measurement models to support learning and meaningful interpretation of outcomes. So that's where I see measurement coming in. Um, and the concept of one size doesn't fit all. So we don't have one exam. We call it the Cambridge English exam. We have a system. So we're talking about systemic approaches to assessing. And this is a two-dimensional matrix, quite easy to read. On the vertical dimension, we have the concept of proficiency from low to high. So learners in, are intended to go from the bottom to the top, so from starting to, 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 to finishing. Um, and going across, we have the concept of different types of assessment for different purposes uh, with different content and different opportunities for interpretation and uses uh, and what it tells you about the learner. So we have a range of assessment types to meet different educational needs and this is where we use the, we define our own Humpty Dumpty-like way of fitness for purpose. And I would argue that this isn't a structure for doing assessment, it's a structure for organising learning. Because these, the way these exams are now used, it's for structuring progression and, and for um, explaining to people what they can and can't do. And this relates to, again, coming back to the what, how we think about English and English language ability, language's communication, 
a can-do approach. No, it's not just knowing the grammar, it's what you can do, how, how you can use it, hence um, theories of communication. We believe that in order to, do, to move on from that concept, you have to dis- define more explicitly the constructs of language abilities, the theories of knowledge, cognition and skills, which underpin your ability to communicate. And you have to think what it means to know a language less well or better. So you have the the concept of progress or proficiency levels over time, the idea of progression. And I would argue, again, um, uh, picking up some of the things that Tim Tim was saying, outcomes which are assessed must align with learning objectives, given our mission. You can't be teaching them one thing and assessing them the other. And theories of teaching and learning acquisition and theories of measurement have to come together in that. So, the what. What do we mean by, um, when we say, a a sociocognitive model of language and learning? Well, I've I've adopted this from um, slides that my colleague Neil Jones recently used. You have a user of a language in some domain, and that person, either as a user or a learner, has things in his or her brain, which we can call knowledge, processes, strategies. These are essential for communication. In the real world, you have to engage in a doing something with language, the can-do, a task in a particular situation, and that is typically a language activity, often interactive with other people. In order to do that, you have to engage your knowledge, skills and processes, and you can monitor that. Now, in the classroom, you could also assess how well that's being done. Um, So you could observe it and say, well, that's not working or that's working well. In real communication, you do that yourself, and you repair your communication if it's not happening. Okay, so on the one side, you have the context of use, which is the social dimension, and on the other side, you have the cognitive, which is what goes on in people's minds. You could say that this is, an, this, in terms of teaching and learning, working on this type of thing might be, nod towards postmodernism, um, a constructivist approach, that these things are not determined, but when you put people in classrooms, these things emerge through the processes of interaction that happen between the people in the context and and, uh, talking about the topics. But the two dimensions are necessary to be accounted for when you claim to be assessing what somebody knows and can do in English. So you've got the teaching dimension, the assessment dimension, they need to be aligned, and you have to be able to account for this systematically. Here is uh, an example through um, a book we've published um, about reading. You mentioned reading, Paul. You have the processing dimension. This, this simply says that when you look at a book at the bottom, the first thing you get is the visual input. Then you have to convert that into some uh, understanding through um, word recognition, lexical access, parsing, and then you move on to what it means through inferencing, constructing model of the text, and so on. But you can't do that without knowledge. You have knowledge of the language, which if you're a learner will be impartial, will be partial, I mean, and, and then knowledge of the world, which you bring to bear as you go up here about the nature of text, the nature of um, rhetorical f- features and so forth. 
And in order to work on those things, either to deal with it as a native speaker or as a learner, you have um, processing and knowledge mechanisms, um, which you call strategies, metacognitive mechanisms, which you bring to bear in order to read. Right. Now, that's reading. Now, when you're testing English, reading is only one part of what you do. So you would have to think about testing English. How does that apply to speaking? How does that apply to listening? How does that apply to any other activity? And you need to be able to account for it if you're going to be able to justify, as, as Paul was saying, that you have some relationship between what your test is doing and what actually is happening in the, in the mind of the person. And we've actually produced uh, a, a series of manifestos on this to explain this, which allows people to challenge us or to um, talk, talk to us about it in some explicit way. Now, this is actually a box set. So if you're looking around for Christmas presents, a stocking filler... Um, after Paul's, uh, After Paul. Well, this before Paul's, because these already exist. And we've also got a very um, interesting summary of all those called measured constructs, because what we would talk about, the word in the literature here is constructs. These are constructs. Or, or central to construct definition. But how do you know that someone knows these things progressively from the beginning to the end? Well, you need some concept of measurement, interpret, which actually does relate to whether or not people know things or not. Something like a thermometer that can measure you know, um, where, how hot it is. We would, in order to do this, we have a, a trait-based approach, an item banking theory, which allows us to link all of our materials into a common scale, which allows us to construct tests at different levels of difficulty for different learners, so that we can locate learners with different levels of proficiency on the same scale, so that our standards, coming back to our framework of reference, can be consistently applied. Issues to do with reliability, interpretability over time, and so forth. Fundamental to what we do but also provides us with a complementary relationship with learning, where the learning dimension here is important as well. How do you get to those levels? How do you know, as a learner, which point you are on that scale? And how do you know how your skills in those areas compare? Often people have what we call a jagged profile. They know more in this area than the other. How can we relate that? Can you actually be at a level? Well... This is what these bands on our reference scale are about. They're not points, they're bands. You could be located as an individual in that domain dimension within a band uh, and different people can be located on the same point or, or within the same band, but they may vary. And what you're looking at from learning is where are you within that band and what do you need to do to progress? That's important thinking Vygotsky here. How, where are you now? What do you need to do to progress? Our approach allows us to explain what's happening, place people on a, on a scale, and then help them by giving them useful information to progress. So this is all about learning. Individualization, helping individuals within those categories do it, is the domain of the teacher. So helping the teacher do her job. Okay, that's the, the what and the how. How well do we actually achieve what we want to achieve? How successfully do we do it? Does our mission get delivered 
is the common good a common good or is it having negative impacts and creating perverse incentives or ways of doing things which don't align with what we first thought of because they haven't actually fitted into the context in the way we thought, perverting things rather than fostering them. So this is, this is where um, the ontological position and the epistemological issues which we're, um, we were hearing about come in. So to know whether you're doing it as you think you are, you have to build up evidence and it's within that evidence base that you then construct an argument or a, a proposition-based approach, an argumentation approach to vote. Philosophy, you refer to argumentation, toolmen, and those kind of influences which influence Messick and Kane and so on. Um, what you need is the, com- the collection and interpretation of complex evidence. It's not only technical evidence. You also have to understand how people behave and how systems work. Hence this idea of the realist proposition. So which philosophical influences and which research methodology? I, like Tim, have been appealing in my own work to uh, critical realism and the particular realist approach which, which treats the world as it is. Light is light. The world is the world. People do what they do. Um, this is Andrew Sayer's book, which I would recommend on that. Um, I've also discovered that in order to get to what happens, you have to have a mixed method approach to research. Um, so non, not an experimental positivist model, but more of a, a nod in the direction of um, constructionism and uh, postmodernism, something more mixed, qualitative dimensions coming in. You need longitudinal designs. I mentioned the 100 years. You have to think of what you do over time. And you need to think of what you do as a proactive participatory approach. The people you're working with in those 120 countries are participants in delivering assessment which is supposed to do what it's supposed to do. Without them understanding it and behaving in appropriate ways, they will certainly pervert it in ways which are relevant to them, but not necessarily to deliver the impacts that you first had in mind. So having... Participants as researchers, quite an important point. So how well? Well, we need to investigate what's happening routinely as validation. So here's a word, validation. Um, You need to have processes in place in your systems, and this needs to be designed in ab initio, not post hoc, on all of these issues. Who's doing what? Who's using what? Who's teaching? Who's um, thinking about things in a particular way? what the um, changes are that happen and how people who are in policy think about what you're doing and whether or not you're helping them in their policy or, in fact, hindering them or, indeed, uh, whether you ought to be um, talking to them to change their policy in some way because uh, what they do isn't actually leading to the right outcomes. Um, on, a, on a sort of traditional level, I would say this is consistent with Messick and, therefore, Kane. Uh, which states that, in essence, test validation is empirical invalidation of meaning and consequences of measurement. We're talking about effects and consequences, taking into account extraneous factors in the applied setting, context, where things are happening, that might erode or promote, not my word, his, validity of local score interpretation and use. I think we need to go beyond that, because that's, I'm, I'm thinking ways in which we can actually come in much earlier in the process of thinking about what we do. 
And this is what I talk about um, in being, you, you talk about being proactive or anticipating and leading to action. I, I've been thinking about how we might develop a model of impact by design, achieving what we need to to get the common good um, through a model which locates the study of impact as a research and development tool with an iterative approach to ongoing test validation and revisions. So there's an imperative to change. That's an essential component in establishing the overall usefulness of an assessment system in terms of its fitness for specific purposes and specific contexts of use. And they're not all going to be the same. And in order to do that, we have to have, again, referring back to... um, Tim, a theory of action as the basis for doing things better. So what you do now might be good, but you also need to think about how you do it better. I've, I've kind of put this together into a single page, which is a summary, and then I'll stop. You look at the red bits to start with. You start from a stance. Now, I'm, I would say our stance is the perspective of the UK Examination Board. Its ontological influences are from critical realism, before that, traditional and contemporary pragmatism, perhaps, uh, work Pierce, you might come to mind, and others in uh, names that might, well, names that we've already heard about. Impact by design is central to thinking about how we go about our business, and here is the point, in interacting with our context and our activities, Validity is an emergent property. It's not, it's not inherent in anything. It's something which you acclaim and you, you justify based on what's happening. It is the improved understanding of the meaning of language assessment in context and of the effects and consequences on systems and people. It's highly dependent on those technical features I mentioned before, but it's not only about that. So the other bits in blue are things you have to do in order to achieve that. And those are the things I've sort of mentioned to you in the presentation. If you're interested in knowing more, our stance is actually set out in this document called Principles of Good Practice. And with that, I'd say thank you very much for your attention. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.